Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you don't have a clear curriculum for your classroom, it is so overwhelming to try to put that together yourself. Spending hours on Pinterest and Google, pulling worksheets and pulling pieces of curriculum together to make something that works for your classroom. That's why we created the Autism Helper Curriculum and now offer Curriculum Access. Curriculum Access gets you access to all levels and all subjects of the highly differentiated evidence-based Autism Helper Curriculum. You can have students working on letter identification and working on parts of speech at the same time in our easy-to-use curriculum. We currently have hundreds of teachers using Curriculum Access from all over the world with consistently rave reviews. I want you to join that group of teachers. Now is the time to ask your administrators for curriculum access. We have an email template ready to go so you can ask them to set up a demo. Your administrators can jump on a live call with our team members to see everything that's included in the Autism Helper curriculum access. Next year, let's reduce the overwhelm. Let's start the year out with a path and a plan and resources to meet all the diverse needs of your students. Let's make next year the year of curriculum access. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Welcome back to another Encore episode of the Autism Helper podcast. I am sharing some of my most listened to, most loved, and most valuable episodes from the past 100 episodes. Now, I have to admit, I was kind of a bad behavior analyst here. So before I even looked at the data of which episodes had the most listens or the most downloads, I already knew I had to include the episode with Dr. Megan Miller. Yep, I did not need data to inform that decision. This is an episode that I come back to again and again. I am constantly, I feel like, emailing out this link because I get questions a lot that relate to what to do in the moment. In the moment of a behavior plan not working. In the moment of a situation escalating. What do I do then? I did the plans right. I took my ABC data. I hypothesized functions. I followed the rules. But as we all know, sometimes you can follow the rules and you can create a perfectly beautiful, make sense on paper behavior plan that just doesn't work in real life. There's some other contextual variable that we didn't include or we didn't anticipate. So what do you do in that moment? 
Do you scrap the plan? Do you force it? Do you follow through? And Dr. Megan Miller gives some amazing advice on this topic. And this is an episode I send right away to people because I don't want them to make mistakes that could potentially lead to stress and anxiety and trauma for not only our kids, but ourselves. If we're trying to force a behavior plan that is not the right fit, it is going to be disastrous on all ends. So I love the advice that Dr. Miller gives here. She was an interview that I was extremely looking forward to and really honored um, that she joined us on the podcast. So without further ado, let's jump into episode 61, A Comprehensive Approach to uh, Challenging Behaviors with Dr. Megan Miller. Hey guys, in today's episode, I am interviewing Dr. Megan Miller. Dr. Megan Miller is a BCBA. She's the co-founder of Navigation Behavioral Consulting and the Chief Clinical Officer of LifeTribe. She's an author, presenter, professor. She has a lot of great experience. And when we started our interview, I loved, and I didn't know this before, that she actually has her PhD in special education. So she has that school background. And if you've listened to this podcast a while, you know that I love that combo of ABA and the special ed world. I also really like talking to behavior analysts that have a similar viewpoint and a similar perspective to ABA as I do. And Megan is really passionate about disseminating our field, about encouraging professionals in the ABA world to do better, which we'll talk a little bit more about in our interview. So our topic that we focused on is addressing challenging behaviors in a way that maintains dignity and respect for the learner. So she discusses some common strategies that BCBAs or teachers might utilize and why that might be problematic. I had, to be honest, a few light bulb moments when she was talking. It was great to kind of put some of the same things we've talked about often on this podcast in a new perspective and under a new light. So without further ado, let's just jump into our conversation. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so looking forward to chatting with you. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting today as well. So can you tell everyone a little bit about your background and what you do now? Of course. Uh, so it's kind of funny. I'm in a transition period right now, um, looking into 2020, but I'll give as much information as I can. <laughs> um, just background wise, I started in the field of behavior analysis, working specifically with um, children diagnosed with autism. When I was in my undergraduate program at a really small university in Ohio called John Carroll, they had um, internship requirement. And my two options were an autism clinic or a mental health facility that was like 45 minutes away. So I chose the autism clinic just because (laughs) it was closer. Um, And I really enjoyed learning from that clinic and seeing what great progress the children were making there. It was the Cleveland Clinic Center for Autism. So I worked there for a little bit, providing in-home services during my undergrad and then for the first year out of undergrad. And then I um, found out you could actually go to school for behavior analysis. And I was (laughs) floored because I had an undergraduate in psychology. And it's like, what are you going to do with that? So um, I had initially planned to go to school to get my uh, PhD in clinical psychology, but I kind of changed course and moved down to Florida and um, went to Florida State University for my master's degree in behavior analysis. I had to be reminded numerous times that it was a behavior analytic program, not an autism program, because my passion (laughs) has always been autism. Um, But, you know, I I love the program because 
it was behavior analysis focused. So I wasn't learning, you know, just like tidbits about autism, but I was learning the science. So that was obviously very helpful. Um, And then I moved to Virginia and started a company because my husband was in the military and he was gone all the time. So I decided I wanted to get my PhD and I went back to school at Ohio State University and kind of changed course a little bit because we found ourselves working with families a lot who needed help getting the proper supports in the school system. And whenever I would try to work in the schools or or collaborate, I was having difficulty because my background as psychology and behavior analysis was drastically different from the teachers and the administrators and things like that in the school system. So I decided if I was going to go back and spend more time in school, I should learn about, you know, something different. So I did my PhD in special education and behavior analysis. That was very eye-opening. Um, still continued to focus on autism, but I was also with a variety of different disabilities and in different classroom settings and, um, you know, really getting to see better what training or lack thereof teachers receive on how to manage classrooms and, um, the science of learning that we all know and love as behavior analysts. So that was really helpful. I love that, that it like really brings together those two worlds. Yeah. Yep. So, um, it definitely really helped. It helped me better empathize because a lot of the times when I would go into classrooms, first of all, I mostly work one-on-one. So there's a whole different (laughs) ball game when you're with a, a classroom of even 10 other children or two other children. Um, so that's different, but you know, when you are trained in something, sometimes you forget what people don't know and what they're not trained in. Um, So it was really helpful to see, you know, the backgrounds of where a lot of the students were coming from that we were trying to teach about behavior analysis. And they were in education programs. Ohio State's set up really nice in that their special education department infuses behavior analysis at the very beginning from undergrad um, all the way up to getting your PhD. But the other departments there in the education realm don't do that. So we were in classes sometimes for a PhD program where there were people in other general education PhD programs, and we were listening to different lectures and things um, as a group, and they were very drastically different from how we would view things as behavior analysts and oftentimes bashing the types of things Mm -hmm. that we would do as behavior analysts. So it kind of helped reframe for me that not only... Sometimes when we go into classrooms, do teachers already have negative experience from maybe behavior analysts who'd been in the past who weren't very good at playing in the sandbox nicely. Um, But they also maybe had negative experiences from just their, you know, training and undergrad masters, whatever level they are from their professors bashing what we do too. So you're kind of coming in at like a really negative (laughs) framework to begin with. You have to do a lot to pair with them and build a relationship before you even try to start um, making any suggestions on changes and stuff like that. So um, yeah, so I, I did that. And then I've, but I've always just really mostly liked coaching and training and others on how much I know about the science because Florida State really did a great job of, of developing those skills for us. But I also just as a human, just naturally lean towards viewing the world in that way. Um, I always say my first behavior plan was when I was a lifeguard when I was in college. (laughs) Before I even knew anything about behavior analysis, I helped a little girl learn how to swim and I used shaping, but I didn't know that's what it was. I just 
She was terrified of the water. She wouldn't, she would get in, but she wouldn't go any further than her chin. And I was like, okay, well, if she'll get in the water, that's great. We can work with that. But I'm not going to try to make her do any of our typical swimming stuff until she can be more comfortable putting her face in. And I'm not going to tell her to put her head all the way under if she'll only touch her chin to the water. So (laughs) I need to break these steps down. And so she earned, you know, uh, some candy for meeting certain goals relating to getting her face wet. And it was all shaping, but I had no idea. <laughs> I'd never been trained on that. Yeah. I didn't know what that was. That's funny that you said that. Cause I felt the same way in my, I went, I became an, a BCBA while I was in the classroom. So it was so fun to learn about ABA and being like, Oh my God, I've been doing yes. this all these years. There's just a cool name for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I know I'm kind of rambling a bit. It's, it's the longest introduction ever, but yeah. So, um, I've, that's kind of been my thing is, uh, taking what I know about behavior analysis and helping others learn about it. So for the past few years, I've mostly been focused on that. I have a few clients, but I have been doing a lot of trainings, uh, both online and also traveling internationally. Um, And then for 2020, that's kind of what my biggest focus is going to be. I um, am going to be allocating a lot more of my time towards continuing to create online content for the Do Better movement, which I started in 2018 and also supporting through mentorship, um, other behavior analysts, because our field is growing so rapidly. And it's great to see that we have so many people who love the science as much as we do. But unfortunately, when you have this many people becoming certified and going through graduate programs at one time, it's hard for everyone to get the same quality um, experience. Like I was mentored and supervised by people who have 20 to 30 years of experience in the field, right? Dr. John Bailey is at Florida state. Um, he's like one of the most published people in our field and that's (laughs) who I got to learn from. Um, but as we've, you know, more online programs have grown and, um, the need for supervision and stuff has grown so rapidly, not everyone gets to have that opportunity. So trying to, to give back and, um, help people, further from, you know, just the baseline of, okay, you're certified now, but that doesn't mean you know everything. Right. And even me, I've been certified for a long time and I still don't know everything. So helping people further develop their skill sets beyond what they would experience just, you know, through their graduate training. Yes. That's so amazing. That's what our field needs so much, because as you said, as we grow and grow, you know, people are going out in the world and representing our field and we want, you know, misconceptions to change. And we want, you know, people to have positive experiences with BCBAs. And in doing that, you need more training and education and to learn more. Oh, awesome. So I'm really excited about the topic that we're going to focus on. And, you know, for listeners, when Megan and I were chatting about what to discuss, one of the topics really piqued my interest because it was focusing on addressing challenging behaviors while maintaining dignity and respect. And this is something that I am so, so passionate about when I do, you know, I do a lot, uh, quite a bit of training as well with school, with teachers. And when I talk about behavior change, I say like 50 times through a full day is this is someone's baby. And like, even if they're 17 years old and 200 pounds and they've got all kinds of crazy aggression, it's still someone's baby boy and their whole world. And we kind of forget that when you're like in the trenches and when, when, when things are hard, frankly. So I think this is such an important topic to talk about. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Um, do you see, like, what kind of, I don't know, not violations is a more extreme word, but missteps do you see in this area when it comes to those challenging behaviors on not giving our clients the respect that they deserve? <laughs> it's hard to narrow that down. So, to, sorry, huge question. Fine, fine. So, <laughs> I do want to give the caveat that everyone that I've encountered in our field approaches what they do with the intent of improving the lives of the individual that they're working with. Um, The biggest misstep I think happens in, we are trained very well to look at data and follow plans. Um, but it's almost to a fault where, you know, it's um, we need to figure out the function and we need to set out this behavior plan. And that's exactly what we have to follow without incorporating and infusing the human piece to it of, OK, well, these are generally the things that, you know, need to happen to see long term behavior change. But as we're working on that, we need to see how the learner is responding to those things that we're implementing. And if we need to adjust and shift what we're doing to help them um, make their life changes in a way that's positive and it doesn't incorporate unnecessary aversiveness. Um, so I don't really know any behavior analysts who would be excited about, yes, we need to be aversive. And <laughs> like everyone's focused on yeah. pairing and motivation and f- building up the best environments for their learners. But sometimes once like a behavior plans put into motion, there's just such an over-focus on, well, these are the steps we said we were going to follow. So it doesn't matter if the child's been tantruming for three hours and it's clearly not ready for a plan like this. We've said this is what we're going to do. So here we go. Um, And I think we get trained for that as well. At least I did in my initial experience in the field. It was like, once you've put something in motion, you better not back out of it. Otherwise you might, you know, accidentally reinforce bigger problem behavior. So, um, so I think there's a lot more discussion that needs to happen in our training about all of that. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you balance? Cause I totally see what you mean. Like, yes, that's how we were trained. We do this behavior plan and it, it might get worse before it gets better and that's okay. And all that stuff. But how do you balance that with like the human piece and looking at the whole context and the whole child? The way that I've been going about it recently, and it's been a, a process, you know, every minute, I would say that I'm in the field, I'm constantly evolving and figuring out how to better incorporate that human piece because for me at least in the way that I see the world it's a lot easier to just cut and dry black and white this or that right it's harder when you get into that gray area of like little steps forward and little steps back and how do we keep focused on our goals but support the learner at the same time that's a lot more nuanced Um, so what, what I've seen as like the two big things that help me and have been helping me train others on this to get into that gray area. Um, One is we have to reframe our process. Right now, almost every time I'm on Facebook or I'm talking to people in our field, 
if somebody mentions a challenging behavior, the very first question is, well, what's the function? And that's great. We need to know the function. We need to know what the maintaining reinforcers are, but that's not all of it. That's not the whole picture. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Mm -hmm. people aren't looking at the whole picture. They think as long as they figure out function, everything else will fall into place. So really looking at our training programs and if we're supervising people or coaching other people and looking at making sure we're not over-focusing on teaching them about function. I think for a lot of us, it's so groundbreaking and mind-blowing to think about like, oh, wow, we can look at the environment and see what's maintaining a challenging behavior. And that's cool, but it can't just be that. That can't be the only thing we're training people on. There's a whole ecological assessment that needs to be happening where we're looking at the context and the likelihood of plans being successful and the skill deficits, especially of the learners. Most of the learners that I've encountered where an intervention that should have been successful goes awry and becomes an intervention where the child is tantruming for a really long time or it's clearly very aversive. Um, It's because the look, they didn't look closely enough at the skill deficits and especially relating to tolerating the changes that would come about from the intervention. So there wasn't enough shaping being used, looking at, okay, our terminal goal is for the child to tolerate sitting in circle time for 15 minutes. And currently they won't even walk over to circle. (laughs) So, okay. It's an escape behavior is maybe what they determine from function. And so the plan is, well, we will just sit in circle with the child and hold them there. And they'll stay there for the whole 15 minutes. Or maybe they use a little bit of shaping and say, well, we'll just make them sit there for a minute and then they can go play. But for that minute, we're making them sit there Um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to looking at where they currently are. Wow, they won't even walk over to circle right now. What can we do to build like what's going on there? Are there, you know, supports that could be used within circle time, maybe some additional visuals or motivating materials? Um, do we need to just work on proximity and build up the duration of being closer to circle first and then eventually get to being in circle? Um, but I think a lot of the times people just go straight to, well, we can just make them <laughs> whatever, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to looking at where are they and how can we motivate them choosing to participate and actively engage and then shift our closer and closer to our goal. So that's like one of the big pieces for me is just that comprehensively, I have a training I've been doing on comprehensively addressing challenging behavior. So yes, we need to figure out the function, but in all honesty, function doesn't matter. I could know the maintaining reinforcer. I could know that it's escape or I could know that it's access to tangibles or attention. But if the learner has skill deficits that override, if they don't have another way to choose a different response, it won't matter if I withhold the reinforcer because that behavior, the replacement's not going to magically appear for them. Um, They'll just continue (laughs) to engage in challenging behavior and it'll just keep getting worse because their repertoire of challenging behavior will just continue to grow as they continue to kind of flail around and not have any other means to access, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to access. And you know what's alarming to me is often on a school-based behavior plan, like that form that you have to use, it's so focused on those reactive interventions and on what you're doing when the problem behavior does occur. And sometimes there's often not even an adequate space for 
the training, the skill training, like what skills do we have to teach instead. So even when you're like a teacher's writing that behavior plan, you're just coming at like, what do I do when this happens? Instead of like, how can I teach the missing skills that are here? Right. Like you almost have to like rewrite, like I'm like, write it in this section, even though it doesn't quite make sense because we yeah. got to have it in here. <laughs> yep. So that's one piece. And then the other piece from like the human perspective is that what I kind of mentioned already is that responsiveness to the learner. So even if you've done like the comprehend, like the, we all, you know, we take into account the variables, we comprehensively address things. We think we've got a really great plan set up, but then you don't really know until you implement if you've covered everything. Cause mm-hmm. we're really, I mean, we're using data to inform our decision-making, but a lot of it's high, hypotheses until we actually implement the intervention. So being able to, once you've implemented the intervention, still, like you were talking about earlier, recognize that this is a person's child. This is an actual human being. This is not a data point. This is not a research project. This is someone who's developing an actual history with you. Um, It's not like when you walk out of this room, whatever went down for those three hours won't exist anymore. Like that's going to forever be part of their life. So in the moment, if you are putting an intervention into place, whether you've comprehensively addressed it and you think you have everything taken care of, or you had to make a split moment decision about something, if you put that intervention into place and it doesn't go the way you planned and the child is expressing to you, this is extremely aversive and this needs to stop stop. It's fine. The the world will not end. (laughs) It is better to take care of that human (laughs) and support them in that moment and make a shift and go, Ooh, okay. I didn't have everything set up the way that I thought I did, because if I did set it up properly, if we had the right supports in place, the proper skills had been taught and I implemented the intervention, this behavior would not be happening. So the whole phrase of like, it gets better before it gets worse really should be very minimally used. <laughs> like, yeah, um, yeah. It, now, again, there are times, because sometimes when people hear me talk about this, they think I'm just like a big softy that, you know, would let a child like gouge their eyes out or something like that. That's not the case. Um, obviously, safety is always a top priority. So if there's something that's happening where the learner is reacting in a way that's not safe, whatever safety measures ha- are in place for that learner obviously need to be followed. But um, there, you also have these situations where we try something and then we go, Ooh, nope, that's not working the way I thought it should. But we're, again, we're trained to just push through and then revise afterwards, which I think for the like 99.9% of the cases that I work on or help with, it should be the opposite. We should go, whoop, pause. This is not going the way we planned. Let's get the child back to, um, you know, a a calm and happy state and figure out what we did that wasn't proper. Um, you know, what do we need to tweak here? And then we'll implement it again. Um, yeah. And you know, when you mentioned safety too, sometimes when you do just power through on a plan that isn't going right, that's when you're going to have your safety risks because if it's that aversive and a child's in that like fight or flight mode, that's when, you know, potentially dangerous things are going to happen that could have been avoided. Exactly. And that's where like that learning history piece is so important. I don't think people really take that into account. So when we say, oh, we have to push through because otherwise the learner, you know, might, might experience that this behavior, you know, gets them out of things or gets them what they want. But the flip side of that is, well, what are they learning if we push through? (laughs) So if we push through and they go from crying and screaming to punching walls and kicking people and throwing chairs and flipping TVs, you know, 
they went from only having a repertoire of crying and screaming to now being very destructive and dangerous. That's a learned behavior as well. Mm -hmm. So which is worse, right? Like, is it worse that they learn that crying and screaming gets them access to something? Or is it worse that they learn how to destroy a bunch of things? And like, you might have to quote unquote, give in or whatever that looks like for the punching in the walls. Because at that point, you don't even maybe have a plan for that. Because that's like a brand new behavior that you're like, whoa, wasn't expecting this. So if you're having to like deviate then, you'd much rather do it with things that were lower magnitude and already like in their repertoire. Exactly. Yep. And I have had, you know, occasionally where we've done the comprehensive things, we have all the safety plans in place, we've gotten all everything's been addressed. We've done the tweaks, we've done the things. And for whatever reason, the learner is just not, not going to shift (laughs) unless we do what I call dropping the hammer, which is, you know, okay, we have all of our safety precautions in place and we've done a cost benefit analysis and given, you know, whatever risks are in place for whatever challenging behavior is occurring. Now we need to hold we need to hold the line and, and help them get over this hump. And we'll do it in a supportive, humane way as possible. But if we don't hold the line here, all of these other negative things would happen for the learner. So I'll give you an example because that's really kind of abstract the way I was talking mm-hmm. about it. I had a learner who um, we were working on food, a food program for him because he had a very limited repertoire and he was overweight. So it was very important that he learned to eat a a wider variety of like healthy foods and the foods that he did eat weren't unhealthy necessarily, but his like main things like chicken tenders and French fries, right? So like trying to help broaden that out a bit so we can get him into a safer weight. Um, So it was a very important life skill. You know, it's not something like I was trying to get him to match some index cards or something like that. Um, And we used shaping. I looked at, okay, his baseline was if we gave him a new food to try, he would touch it to his tongue, but then immediately wipe his tongue off with his hand. So he wouldn't even tolerate (laughs) the like little bit of the taste on his tongue. Okay, so that's where we need to start. And we started there and we had very small steps to build up towards eating actual bites of new food, new healthy food. We got to a point where he would take a few bites of the food and then he would start to tantrum and get upset about it. So, and we were there, we, we would back up a little bit and build and try to get some momentum going. And it didn't matter what else we did, what other tweaks we made, how we presented it. He was just like not going to get past the hump of just a few bites of the new food. Well, that's not going to be helpful in terms of improving his health, if we don't push through that hump. And the behavior he was engaging in wasn't very dangerous. He was, you know, screaming and crying and whatnot. So we we had to drop the hammer there. We had to get him over that hump of, okay, we've built up, we've done, we've assessed, we've built up your skills, and you're just refusing to move forward. So um, up until that point, if he cried or whatever, we'd say, okay, you don't have to keep eating this. But when we dropped the hammer, we had to say, okay, you know, we're not going to force you, we're not going to like shove food down your throat, but you can't do anything else. Nothing else is available to you until you take these few bites of food. And we kept him in a more like kind of restricted area. So we didn't physically hold him there or anything. But it was just if he tried to leave, you know, a certain area around the table that he was eating, we would say, Oh, you need to eat your food first. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, within like a few 
trials of that, he was eating all of the food. So, but we had to, like, we had to get to that point. The unfortunate thing is a lot of people are starting at that point yeah. of, okay, here, this is the food. You have to eat it. We're going to hold you here until you do instead of all of the buildup that we did. And when I say all of the buildup, we started with a kid who would wipe his tongue with new food on it. And in a matter of a few weeks of trials, we were able to get him to taking a few bites of food. So it's not like months and months and months. It's baby steps, but you move through them quickly to get through that successful goal. Mm -hmm. Um, But every once in a while with some learners, we'll hit kind of that (laughs) roadblock where it's like they put their foot down. Okay, I've gone this far. I'm not going any further. But for health and safety reasons, you're you you have to push them further. So that it's at that moment that the procedures we know about with extinction are most effective and most applicable. But unfortunately, a lot of people are using those procedures as their initial um, response to things instead of using the buildup and helping to shape and provide support from the beginning. And it sounds like it would be a lot more effective when once you've done all that, you know, background work to build up to that, that the extinction procedure, yeah, like it's like you said, it didn't, it didn't take that long because you'd already done everything else you needed to do. Right. And with that particular kid, if we had started <laughs> at that, yeah. you know, extinction point, we would have made zero progress. He would, there's no foods he would have tried ever because we weren't starting where he was. Yeah. Can you, can you for like real quick, do, do a quick def- definition of extinction? Cause I don't really use that word all too often. So yes, yes, just for people course. listening that don't understand, can you explain <laughs> what extinction is? Cause everyone's going to yeah. know what it means, but you explain it. Yeah. Right. And I'm sure it sounds like awful, but <laughs> <not> um, awful. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking, of, we need to come up with some new terms. But yeah. <laughs> so, in in uh, in the science of learning, a field of behavior analysis, uh, extinction refers to we identify what why a child is engaging in the responding that they're engaging in. So, if for um, this particular learner, he would engage in tantrums and crying to escape eating new foods. So he wanted to get away from these new foods. Um, A lot of children, especially in the school setting, will engage in challenging behavior to get out of like different academic demands. So they might, you know, throw their pencils or flip their desks over and then they go out in the hallway for a timeout. But basically they're accessing exactly what they're trying to get. (laughs) So first we have to figure out why are they doing this? What's in it for them? Why, why are they choosing to, to, to follow this behavior? What, what are they getting? And once we know what that is, um, then one of the options available is to do what we call put it on extinction where, okay, if we know that the child is trying to use this behavior to get out of something, we no longer let them get out of it. We follow through and we continue to present that demand until they comply. Um, Or if it's like, if they are doing it like a little kid at the grocery store, tantruming over a candy bar and the mom's been giving the candy bar, we would train the parent, you know, next time just don't give the candy bar. And yep, you're going to have a really big tantrum about that, but you know, sorry. (laughs) But so, and the idea with extinction, I mean, it's effective. It's not that it's not effective. There's tons of research. There's study upon study upon study with beautiful graphs showing very high rates of challenging behavior. And then you put in the intervention that includes extinction and the behavior drops down um, pretty drastically, pretty quickly. But you often will get the extinction, what we call the extinction burst, where the first few data points don't drop down and they might actually be higher. Um, Or the few data points that exist 
um, in after you've put in the intervention are more intensive. So I always say, at what cost is it effective? Mm -hmm. I think that's a discussion that hasn't been had. And when you, if you're kind of nerdy like us and you're reading journal articles, you can't glean from just looking at the graphs. You don't know um, when they were engaging in 100 instances of challenging behavior before the intervention, and then they only engaged in five during the intervention, how much worse were those five instances? Like what did the person actually go through during that time. And it's not to say we should never use extinction, but it should be much more carefully thought out and planned than what tends to be happening a lot nowadays, where I, I said the phrase already, people will say, just put it on extinction, just don't give them the (laughs) thing that reinforces it. And it's like, that's that works if the learner already has the skills necessary and all sorts of things happening for them in their environment. And it, it literally only all that remains is to make sure they're not getting reinforcement for the challenging behavior. But it's very rare that that's the case. Like most of our learners that we're working with have so such varied histories and like skill deficits, especially around communication, that it would be very rare that like they're set and they're good to go. And it's just as simple as like, just don't give them the thing that they're wanting. And, you know, I'm like smiling so much listening to you talk about this because I, I talk about this a lot, not as eloquently or as well thought out as you do, but an extinction and, you know, putting things, something on extinction in a school-based setting to me is so often not an option because they just, with resources that many schools have where they're understaffed, where they're not trained in restraint, where there aren't, you know, procedures that are going to allow for that quote unquote extinction burst, if it were to happen, it's just not always an option. So I'm always trying to like talk with teachers about other things to do. And like, because we can't kind of power through the like, oh, it might just get a little worse because in a general education building, you know, that can't happen because there, it could really escalate to where there's like a real safety concern. Yep. And so it's, it's fun to like hear about, cause everyone's like, well, what else do you do? And I hear a lot with, you know, talking about escape extinction, we'll just make them do the task. And like, if we're talking like junior high or high school teachers, they're like, oh yeah, right. Like, I'm not going to like, you know, because you think of like hand over hand, that's all you think of. You're like, I'm not going to hand over hands like a 15 year old. I'm like, yeah, please don't. Cause you'll lose a, you'll you'll lose a finger. Um, But there's so many other things that you can do. And that skill acquisition piece is just so, so important. Yep. Uh, and, um, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say <laughs> with the, the extinction and it potentially not working, I've also found when I've done trainings in the schools, but also just with people that aren't behavior analysts, it's a, for me at least, it's a lot easier to train people to reinforce the precursors and just vary their quality of reinforcement and the magnitude of reinforcement. So if the learner is wanting to escape from like doing their math or whatever, and they start rocking a little bit in their chair, and that's one of their precursors saying, hey, that's cool, you can have a break for a few minutes. Um, And they, you know, don't have to do it or like, oh, you can only you just do too fine, do too calmly, and you can be done something where they're they're getting that escape. Um, But if they um, choose to do the worksheet, or they appropriately indicate that they need a break of some sort, then there's a higher magnitude of escape. Maybe they get a homework pass or they get a worksheet pass where they don't have to do, they don't have to do it at all. Um, Or they get a higher quality break where it's like, hey, you did your whole worksheet, the first one, great. 
and there was one more to do, but instead you get to go on the computer for a few minutes or something like that. So it takes time and planning to figure out what your different qualities would be, but it's a lot easier to train people because we all have an inclination to do something when someone's engaging in challenging behavior anyway. So from the standpoint of training someone, if I can train them how to support the learner and what to do, that's a lot easier than saying just ignore it (laughs) Um, or just like maintain the demand or whatever, especially because it's eventually going to get to a point that they probably can't ignore it anyway. Yeah. So yeah. And that's always the, you can always see that question brewing in someone's head, but like, but what if they do this? And what if they do that? And what if they run in the middle of the street? Do I ignore them that? No, of course you don't ignore them that, you know, like there's just all those what if scenarios that pop up that, yeah, you're, you're not going to necessarily be able to follow through and do that. Um, I love, I love the discussion on varying the magnitude of reinforcers. And I think, you know, especially with attention, that's so easy to do. And we often don't, realize how much attention we're giving so, like unnecessary attention like I always talk about there's like this one kid and I you know there's always certain scenarios but I've seen this like replicated so many times with attention maintained elopement so like running out of the classroom and like you always see these kids like they're just blissfully happy they're sprinting down a school hallway they have an adult playing chase with them who would literally never play chase with them and they're like this yep. is amazing this is yep. great <laughs> like you know they're almost like s- smiling ear to ear running and we give like I I've been guilty of this and I've watched amazing, you know, teachers in Paris guilty of this too. You know, you're going to run after them. You got to get them. You can't let them get out of the school. But then we give all the unnecessary attention, the lecture, the talking, the like dramatic reentry into the classroom where you let everyone know how far they got and like how out of breath you are and how out of shape you are. And like, you know, this, all this hoopla, like I got like discussion and extra stuff versus yeah, I can give you attention. I ran after you and I got you, but you're right back to regularly scheduled program. But when you do, you know, when you ask for me to come help you or when you ask for me to play tag, then it's going to be awesome. Like then I'm going to be in it. Yeah. So we don't even realize that we're in control of that. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Some of the trainings I've done with teachers will practice the different, you know, kind of more neutral, sort of nonchalant, I'm going to reinforce this to get you back on track versus the really like exciting, you know, chase that you were talking about. And, um, and it is something that some people do need to practice because in the moment when it happens, again, our natural inclination, if a kid goes bolting out of the classroom is to like one run wildly after that, (laughs) get back here. So it, it does take, you know, planning and whatnot, but it's, once you've got your plan and you've practiced it a little bit, it's so much easier to follow. And it's usually so much more successful for the learner too. Yeah. Cause they're, yeah, they're getting, you know, it's, and it's, and it's safer too. Cause I, I think thinking about potentially dangerous things is always in the back of my head. So it's just going to hopefully keep kids safer. And a lot of this examples that you gave in scenarios you gave, you know, you kind of kept talking about you know, reviewing and going back and this isn't working. So it's really this ongoing process of looking at your data, but also looking at the context. And I think sometimes people think we're either like all in on data or we do no data and we're all in on our like gut feelings. And so it's, it's interesting to hear kind of that analysis piece that is ongoing, but incorporating everything. So what kind of advice would you give for, you know, a busy teacher that has a lot on their plate on, I think the analysis piece on the data gets lost sometimes because we take data because we think we should take data, but we don't use the data. Mm-hmm. So how can you get yourself like in that regular 
routine of really utilizing what you're seeing and the data that you've taken? <laughs> I'm probably the worst person to ask this question to. <laughs> so um, I think data is really great and important and helpful. I need it if there's cases that I'm not visibly seeing often enough. But to be honest, the best data for me is seeing the child and what's happening in the moment, because it doesn't matter what you write down for your frequency count or your duration or your ABC. There's always going to be stuff that I would see if I was watching it that will not be on those data sheets. <laughs> so oh my God. Terms everyone, of- <laughs> everyone listening just like breathed a collective sigh of relief, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> you said that. I'm not saying like we, we don't take it or anything like that. We having, especially I love if, um, I don't know, Sasha, if you've interviewed anyone, um, from the precision teaching realm before, but if you haven't, I highly recommend having some of those people on. I'll send you some email. Um, yes. We, 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 I talked to um, Bridget McCormick. We talked about oh, pinpointing behavior. Perfect. People were obsessed with that. Okay. So I like the way that precision teachers um, conceptualize how to like look at data. So have there's, there's three levels. There's micro, macro, and meta. And I don't want to get like too nerdy and, and termy, but basically the idea is you have certain things that you're measuring daily and you're taking a measure of. You have certain things that you're measuring maybe weekly or monthly. And then you have certain things that you measure like maybe quarterly. Um, and the ultimate is like when you do those quarterly measures that you see that, um, generalization to, so like in a school setting, it's easiest to think about like your, um, your daily measure might be if you were doing like a, a, a reading activity and they like read a passage out loud and you would take data on that. Um, and then your like weekly or monthly might be, um, a curriculum based measurement, um, like the dibbles or something where they would, um, do an assessment on a computer and, uh, maybe sound out some words or something like that. And then your, um, your quarterly assessment or maybe annually, just depending would be like a standardized reading test. So, um, so you're really looking at these measures, um, but it's not just like our typical, like frequency duration type things, but really like real life application of what's happening. So for the clients that I work with, um, even if the, cause a lot of the times the few clients I do have, it's families that are, um, providing the intervention. So it it might be, you know, a mom with two kids and like no help. (laughs) So like, how are they going to take data all day long? So we'll do like data samples where it might be, um, you know, at least one day per week at the same time, take a count of how, you know, how often the challenging behavior is happening. And then we look at that over time and I can see if our intervention was effective or not. But even with that, I still need to visibly see the child and like what's actually happening. Because even if I see that it's decreasing to know what my next steps are, or even if it's increasing to know what my next steps are, I really need to see the full chain of events that are happening for that child and see what other tweaks we need to make and what changes we need to make. The data is there to help support, say, if he were to go to a different setting or I was on a new team of people with him and I wanted to explain what's effective the data helps paint that story for me, as opposed to me just being like, just believe me, it's my opinion that (laughs) such and such is helpful. Right. Um, so that's for me where like data is the most valuable for the work that I do right now. It's more, so you have your evidence, right. Of like, this is what's working or this is what's not working. And these are why, this is why I'm making these recommendations, but how I decide what changes to make. And especially with challenging behavior, I have to see it. I have to see that whole chain of events. And I really have to like 
tease it apart with some cases. We'll take video samples because I'm not obviously there. Um, but ultimately I have to see it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, I mean, obviously like I agree, data is really important, but as we know, there's not, you can't always take really accurate data. And even if it's really accurate, like it's not going to show the whole picture. You can't always track magnitude very easily or all the little nuanced things that happen within that like ABC context. So that's really, really helpful advice. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. This has been so interesting. I like, I could keep going, but I know you are really busy. Um, where, where can people go to learn more about you and more from you? So <laughs> that's one of the kind of transitions happening for 2020. The best place right now, I have a Facebook group for those that are on Facebook. Um, that's called hashtag do better professional development movement. And I'll give you the link to that if you want to put it in the show notes. Yes, I would love to. Um, I also have a website called dobetterpod.com and a few other like new things starting for 2020. But those are the two easiest links for right now to see. Um, we have like YouTube and Instagram and all of that kind of fun stuff too. YouTube, I put a lot of video examples of some of the um, skill acquisition things that we use to help address barriers to learning, which was not what we talked about today, but there's just, <laughs> a, I pr try to put examples on there and I'll also be putting some like training clips on there for 2020. So I'll give you the YouTube link too, just in case people want to see some videos. Yes. I, everyone always loves a video. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been really informational and really helpful. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And again, I just thank you for all the work you've been doing to help um, people, especially in the schools with more effective strategies to use in their classrooms. The way that you've designed things is so user-friendly. And I was telling you before we started recording, I've been giving out your information for years. So it was really exciting oh. to have you contact me and have this conversation. Oh, that means so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest. Or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, 
everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.